second to the Digital Digest, your weekly data centers and telecoms news roundup podcasts published every Friday, brought to you by Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, John Max Lima, and with me I have our Editor-at-Large, Alan Burkett-Gray, Deputy Editor, Melanie Mingus, and Senior Reporters, Abigail Opia and Natalie Bannerman. In this episode, Brazilian OE seeks $2.9 billion for its mobile business unit. Data center operators continue expansions and groundbreaking ceremonies go virtual. T-Mobile US goes down in the US. <laughs> uh, and boardrooms of industry giants reshuffle as a result of COVID-19. But before we get to those, um, this week was International Telecoms Week, better known for its acronym ITW. If you visit our website, you will see, we'll also see all our coverage from the event, as well as the latest Capacity Magazine and all the ITW newspapers covering the event and the industry. Although we couldn't meet in Atlanta, as originally planned, uh, we run a successful four-day virtual event for more than 3,500 3, delegates, apologies. Um, and as you would expect, a lot was said and a lot was discussed. Um, so let's start maybe with ITW, um, everyone. What have you learned this week? Well, I'll go first. It's Alan here. Um, I saw that the industry believes that this COVID crisis will go on and on for a long time. Um, in the opening panel uh, session, um, ITW did a poll of the audience um, and found that more than half think this will go on for six months, in other words, the end of the year. Another third thought it would go on until this time next year, so another th six months longer. And some even suggested by the end of 2021 or even mid 2022 before we see the back of it all um, and things go back to normal as much as they ever will. Um, the panel was looking at the future of connectivity in a COVID world. Thought that even so, we won't get back to the normality that we lived in until the end of 2019, which is only six months ago. Um, Kerry Gilder, who's the new CEO of Cult, she said uh, we'll see permanent change. John Nolan of AT&T said we'll have to wait for a vaccine before things can go back. We can all go back to work. Um, it's changed the traffic on networks um, up 30 percent, Kerry said. And Facebook's uh, head of network engineering, Najam Ahmad, he said it was up 30 percent as well. Um, hope, possibly hope, I'm not sure it's right. Word Emmanuel Rochas of Orange, he said this lockdown just can't go on. People have been working from home for three months and it's not sustainable. Uh, on the positive side, Najam of Facebook, he said people's productivity has gone up. Um, I suppose we can all agree on that. I get to my desk earlier without a commute and I leave it later. Uh, been nice to see the outside world though. Over to Natalie. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. So um, one of the things that um, kind of came to my attention during the uh, um, ICW this week um, <clears throat> was the an announcement by Deutsche Telekom Global Carrier and Orange International Carriers. The two have uh, confirmed that they are working on two proofs of concepts uh, to enhance IPX services. Um, so specifically, these proof of concepts focus on KPIs and IPX hub breakouts. So the KPI proof of concept basically aims to establish and validate end-to-end -end performance indicators using blockchain technology, uh, another buzzword for those of, of, of us who hear it quite often in the industry. Uh, and the last being um, an IPX hub proof of concept, which actually relates to optimizing system architecture for regional peering. Um, so <clears throat> just one key takeaway from this week in terms of what's been going on in terms of projects and collaborations in the space. Um, but that's it from me. Um, well, another interesting takeaway, um, specifically from 
the conference side of things um, was that Mexico needs 10 times the fiber infrastructure it already has, according to Gloria Pallavicini, who spoke yesterday during the connectivity in LATAM session. Um, she said that only 40% of infrastructure demand is covered in Mexico currently. Uh, Xiao. Oh, no, that's cool. um, I'm actually going to pick up slightly on what Alan said about as well about COVID. Um, and one thing that really became evident is that everyone really seems to agree that we are at the beginning of a new era. Um, even though it might take six, 12, 18 months to, to get out of it, to, to, to start it, basically. Um, but we, we still can't really call it a post-COVID-19 era because we're still living it. Um, but like I wrote in the magazine's editorial, I think we are now moving to the second phase of the pandemic with all the other confinements, and hopefully this will be the last one, so there's no second wave. Um, a slide that really stuck with me um, from this week was, um, was Ivor Ivanovs, the CEO of the CIX International, where he talks exactly about this new time in our lives. He picked up World War I in 1914, the financial crisis in 1929, World War II in 1939, uh, the 1973 oil crisis, uh, then the 2008 financial crisis, and now, of course, the 2020 coronavirus crisis. Um, these have all things that have reshaped the economy and the world. Uh, and one key takeaway from this year really is probably the sense of speed at which things will happen going forward. Um, digital was going through a boom in adoption. Um, this is something that's been happening for many, many years. We've written, we've, we have been writing those headlines for quite a long time now. Um, but what we are now witnessing and probably what we're going to be seeing more, it's let's call it a big bang boom um, of developments, deployments, adoption, um, both on the enterprise side, on the B2C side. So it's going to be fascinating to see how the market dances that. Um, and it's definitely something that a lot of people touched um, at ITW. Um, I, for example, I was going through some news last night as well, and uh, my eyes stopped on some figures where they were talking about the amount of people that use Zoom. So Zoom went from, for example, 10 million people every day in December to 300 million on a daily basis by now. Um, we know the life that we are going to live um, in the future is going to be way more digital than before. Um, and COVID just speeded up. And this was one again, again, one of the big takeaways from the conference this year. Um, so I do feel like these numbers will keep steady, if not grow even more, even with the, the confinements taking place. Um, another thing that we learned was that the market consolidation will continue. Um, there is money out there for investments and talking about, I'm talking about the IT infrastructure space um, and COVID has, COVID has definitely not stopped that. It might have delayed things a little bit back in March, but the market is back on track and investment is being made out there. Um, and there is something that we've also heard at the Data Cloud Global Congress that we run just less than two weeks ago. And um, Abigail, I'm going to pass it over to you because you paid a lot of attention to that one as well. Yeah, so one of the main things that I gathered from that, which was also uh, spoken about in ITW as well, is that developing countries will certainly not be left behind in the push for digitalization. So both telecoms and data center companies are well aware of the opportunities that lie in you know developing countries like um, India and Africa as a continent. So yeah, just looking forward to seeing how the push and the investment um, lies in each of those regions, really. Mm. Okay, this sounds, this sounds all very good. Um, I, I think it's been a really informative week, uh, both this week and even the, the Monaco week two weeks ago, um, the Virtual Data Cloud Congress. Um, and we'll be doing some special coverage, post-event coverage in the coming weeks as well to, to cover everything that we couldn't write this week. Because as our listeners at home can imagine, it's been quite um, hectic for the editorial team, but we are getting there now. Um, but all right, guys, thank you very much for that. Uh, moving on now to the, the, the world news. So let's go around the world uh, with each one of you. 
Um, and let's start with Brazil. So we had some big news in Brazil this week. Um, so the Brazilian telecom operations, OI, um, has announced plans to spin off four business units from its main operations. And the company also has intentions to sell its mobility business units for almost $3 billion. Um, Natalie, you covered this one. We're talking about huge numbers um, in a very, very interesting and diverse market. Uh, what can you tell us about this news and what does this mean to the Brazilian market and even what does it mean for the whole of LATAM? So, as you say, um, OI um, has, well, it, it's a little bit unsurprising for anybody who's been following the story because <clears throat> OI has been in, in a in in a bit of trouble for, for quite some time. Um, it actually entered into bankruptcy back in 2016. Um, but yes, in a securities filing this week, it confirmed that it um, plans to spin off four of its business units. Specifically, the, the units that it's going to spin off are uh, towers, data centers, mobile assets, and fiber infrastructure, all of which will either be sold or partially sold. Um, so the move, as I said, forms part of its ongoing bankruptcy protection proceedings um, that it started in 2016. Um, at the time, the company confirmed that it had debts of, of around 19 billion um, that was owed mostly to banks and to the uh, Brazilian regulator um, Anatel. Um, so proceeds of the sale un uh, unsurprisingly will be um, used to obviously pay down its debts but also to expand its broadband fiber network. Um, it uh, follows the company's intention to also sell off its mobile units for at least 15 billion reals or 2.9 billion dollars. Um, so bidding is actually due to start in Q4 of this year um, uh, with the intention of it closing by the end of of 2021. Uh, the company has already confirmed that it has received interest from companies like Tim Brazil and Telefonica Brazil. Um, obviously, their, their competitors are probably looking to, to grow their footprint in the region. Um, and uh, additionally, the company also hopes to raise about 1 billion um, reals or uh, 190 million for another of its units, which is comprised of mobile towers and telecoms infrastructure, specifically in uh, shopping centers and hotels and, and other kind of um, public infrastructure. Um, so yeah, the, the news is hardly surprising. Uh, OI has already uh, been told that it will not receive um, any support from the Brazilian government should it go under. So I suppose right now what we're seeing is uh, OI attempting to dig itself out of its hole. Um, it would be certainly something to kind of keep an eye out over the uh, over the coming weeks to see, you know, what the outcome of the bid was and how much it, everything eventually gets sold for. Fascinating. Um, it's it's a market that we will be looking at uh, more in detail because um, there's been some other developments this week um, in Brazil as well involving the US government and um, Huawei. Um, but that's something that Alan will be talking about maybe next week. Um, but yeah, Brazil, it's definitely a market that we need to keep an eye on and we'll keep bringing the latest to our readers. Um, and Abigail, moving on to the data center space, uh, we've seen some quite big announcements coming from Asia. Um, again, Asia. So Asia seems to be booming in terms of um, data center infrastructure, especially during the, the, the pandemic. Things don't, have not stopped there. Uh, digital Realty in South Korea and we have Rack Bank in India. What, what were the stories in, in here? Yeah, so Digital Realty began construction on its first ever facility in South Korea following a virtual groundbreaking ceremony held in the region. Um, the company said that the 12 megawatt data center will be the company's first uh, global carrier neutral facility in Korea and it's scheduled to be completed by 2021. Um, the company also revealed that this week 
um, the data centre will be built on a 22,000 square foot land parcel within the Sangan Digital Me Media City in Northwest Seoul. Um, the move marks an expansion of Digital Realty's platform digital across Asia Pacific and will be a step in the right direction towards the company's goal of promoting South Korea's digital economy. Um, in regards to the details of the data centre, the building will encompass over 162,000 square feet spanning 12 levels, which is huge. Um, the company's CEO labelled the data centre as an important milestone for the company on its global platform roadmap. Um, I recently interviewed Bill Stein for Data Economies magazine and he said that because the data centre in general is the central nervous system for a digital economy, um, which has been even more amplified because of uh, COVID and yeah, the outbreak, we can expect nothing short but growth all around in the industry. From virtual data centre groundbreaking ceremonies to virtual memorandum of understanding signings, Rack Bank and the government of Maharashtra signed an MOU to facilitate the building of data centres in Mumbai and Pune in India. The signing took place on Monday during a virtual conference in the presence of um, two honourable chief ministers of the, um, the region. The MOU was executed between um, the founder of Rackwag and he's a CEO, Narinda Sen, who you've interviewed plenty of times, Jao. And um, they were obviously planning to, well, they are planning to create many, many data centres in India. Um, they are trying to push for the digital economy to grow, which is um, something that we will definitely be keeping an eye on. These campuses, they said, um, will be global cloud infrastructure ready facilities and have upwards of 300 megawatts. And Ratbank also plans to invest in building deliver and delivering hyperscale data centres across key markets, which will include Mumbai and Delhi, amongst many others in India. So, yeah, lots of um, things happening in developing countries and, yeah, just really just amplifies what I spoke about earlier about the push for digitalization in um, developing countries. No, absolutely. And we, we also had the special on the Indian markets in the, the Delhi Economy magazine that came out a few weeks ago. Um, and we look into those numbers and the numbers are just staggering. I mean, talking about billions of dollars that are going to be invested. I think it's about $10 billion expected to be invested um, in the short near future. Um, and Rackbank, we know, has a lot of plans for a lot of expansion. And um, I know Narendra has been approached by some good names in the industry, so we can definitely expect a lot more coming from this company. Um, and actually, we've got a video on YouTube that we recorded with him in India back in 2009. I think I think it was Data Card Indian 19, um, yeah. which is now going viral, and we have nearly 6,000 views on that one. Most of them coming just in the last week, um, and the headline is how to build a data center business in India. So you can tell there's a lot of interest um, in the Indian data center market, and people are looking on how to to penetrate that market. Because um, at the end of the day, you got 1.2, 1.3 billion people living there, um, and there's a lot of hundreds of millions that still need to be connected and use the cloud. Uh, but staying with the data centers and the tech firms in general as well, uh, this week in Europe, now moving on to Europe and especially to Ireland, uh, Nobel Prize win winner Joseph Stiglitz, if I pronounced that correctly, uh, this week accused Ireland of robbing, and that's a quote, quote, robbing, uh, its European neighbors by allowing multinationals, including some of the world's biggest tech firms, to avoid tax obligations by bypassing, um, sorry, bypassing part of their operations in the country. Uh, Melanie, 
Ireland and the tax debate is not a new thing, but this is quite a statement from, from Stiglitz. What can you share? Yes, well, um, the European Commission has basically instructed Ireland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Hungary, Malta and Cyprus to address their tax loopholes. Um, now, like you said, Jar, Ireland and the European base as the European base for the US tech giants is a well-established story. And we're all familiar with the dispute between Ireland, the EU and Apple over its tax bill. Um, now, earlier this week, Stieglitz accused Ireland of robbing its European neighbours by allowing this tax loophole to continue. Um, Joseph is a Nobel laureate and an economist, so he knows what he's talking about um, and he was speaking just a couple of days before the US and Europe discussed the proposed international digital platform tax. Now that sounds like a completely new initiative but essentially it's designed to firm up the rules around cross-border taxation. It all ultimately comes back to the same point. Um, now those talks didn't go too well um, between the US and Europe. We heard that news this morning. Um, the US government is obviously very protective of the country's various tech-powered industries. Um, for example it's the largest customer of the satellite industry which has put the US way ahead of other territories when it comes the value of its satellite industry as a whole and that's just one example um, and it very much looks like the US is flexing some similar muscle here to protect its tech giants. Um, now not only has this put a halt on the EU's ambitions for now but the Treasury Secretary basically threatened retaliatory steps if, if to any individual country which decided to induce its own taxes instead of the Europe-wide initiative. Um, so place your bets on who will win that round. Um, but when it comes to tech, the EU has a very strong line on protecting its principles and the integrity of its laws. And we've heard that several times over recent weeks in relation to tracing apps as well as more general regulatory changes. Um, but Ireland has really dug its heels in on this one for a long time. Um, and despite the pressure it's faced in the international media and from governments and various tech firms, it does reap the benefits of hosting these companies at European bases. So although there's a lot going on, if we look at just the pressure the EU is now trying to apply to Ireland and the other similar nations, my thinking is that as the one with potentially the most to lose, Ireland will not be the first one to address this. So I think this may continue for quite some time. No, absolutely. Like, I mean, I think since um, since I started writing about data centers, for example, picking up on the data center side, um, mm. this has been a story that he's, has been going on. Um, and I think it was in 2018 that Ireland, the government in Ireland, ended up just paying the EU a fine. It yeah. was cheaper for them just to pay that fine than actually taxing Apple. Um, at the time, I think Apple, Google, all those guys together, um, the tax the EU was trying to impose. Because, I mean, some of these investments that these guys make in these countries like Ireland, Denmark, um, Belgium, they are some of the largest foreign capital investments that these countries get. Um, yes. And we're talking about IT infrastructure. So, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to point out as well, it is important to highlight now that they're not actually breaking the law. Everything they're doing yeah. is within the international regulations. They're not actually doing anything wrong. They're just working within the system. But yeah, you're right. They do make huge FDI um, investments in these places. Um, and obviously, mm -hmm. Ireland is one of the many beneficiaries um, of such policies. But yeah, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I think you're absolutely right here. No one's breaking the law here and they're just playing by the book. Um, so the EU is just having a, a hard time going around its own rules. But I mean, we can definitely expect a lot of changes here. Um, I think we've also, with this new GAIA-X um, announcement, where they're trying to create a cloud for Europe or IT infrastructure, even though they say they don't want to compete with these guys, um, so the hyperscalers, I think that's going to change the game slightly. And we are waiting to see exactly um, what's going to be done there. We, we know the overall idea. Um, and you can read more on our um, ITW Daily Day 3. Um, about GAIA-X, but it's once that thing comes into place next year, once it's actually launched in 2021, that's when we're going to see the real impact that that might have um, on companies like Apple, Google, AWS, and so on. Um, 
But then, well, picking up on these companies and North American companies, moving on to North America, but not about hyperscalers, um, T-Mobile US suffered a widespread outage, um, and even the Federal Communications Commission has in the situation as, in quotes, unacceptable. Um, we've been covering the COVID-19 crisis for a while, but we haven't really had that many stories about outages, or at least large-scale outages. Alan, what's what's going on in the US? Well, yes, it's it's uh, Zhao. It's, it's nearly three months since T-Mobile US, which is effectively a subsidiary of Deutsche Telekom, succeeded in its uh, long-term ambition. It's been going four or five years of merging with Sprint, a mobile rival. They were the number three and number four positions in the US mobile market. Um, there were lots of promises that after the merger was complete, which was on the 1st of April, a great day to be making great announcements, uh, that the network would be better, service would be better, employment would go up. Um, actually, that's not because they started processes for the firing people this week as well. Um, but what happened earlier this week was a long outage. It annoyed customers, of course, and it annoyed the regulator, as you said, the FCC. And that could be expensive because last time, a few years ago, T-Mobile had to pay $17 million uh, to the FCC for going off uh, for about three hours, and this fairly was about twice that long. What caused it? Well, T-Mobile's head of technology, Neville Ray, was the, the guy who had to deliver the bad news. Uh, he said it was a fiber provider in the southeast of the US, and then aren't these backed up? Well, you'd expect them to be, but then the backup went down as well. And so there was just a, a concatenation of events, which meant the whole network basically went out. It was part of the network. It was a failure of modern telecoms technology. The fiber failure hit, hit the company's IMS, the IP multimedia subsystem, which people have been building over the last few years as the future of telecoms. Um, and that runs a fancy new services, so voice over LTE, Volti, as it's called, which gives very high quality um, connections when you've got a 4G network. Um, it's all IP all the way, and setup is in a half fraction of a second. Latency is really low, and the quality is just amazing. Um, but that that's what went down. So people could still use the old technology, the circuit switch connections, and the Sprint networks, which hasn't yet been integrated into T-Mobile, that carried on going. So former Sprint customers were laughing, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whose fault was it? Um, Neville Ray hasn't named names, but T-Mobile US is a, a listed company in the US, uh, and so is Deutsche Telekom as a listed company here in Europe. So we'll get to find out before too long, I think. Um, if ITW had been happening in real life this week in Atlanta, as we planned, uh, we could have found out pretty quickly by watching out for who was running out of the conference room to address the outage because it was their fiber probably had gone down. But that's not something you can get with a virtual conference. Sorry about that. Yeah. And, and we've seen those things happen before where something goes wrong and you know exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, we'll get to hear fairly soon. Of course, got you know, it's people have been fairly tight-lipped because obviously T-Mobile is an important customer, and you know, all said and done, they are going to be expanding their network, integrating it with Sprint, moving to 5G very quickly, and so there's a lot of fiber providers who are going to have to be performing very well to persuade T-Mobile to give them their business. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, definitely something to keep an eye on, and let's try to find out that name as soon as we can, <laughs> even virtually. Um, but then lastly, and to, to close our podcast today, um, we've been hearing about businesses reorganizing themselves in their strategy to cope with the effects of COVID-19 um, as countries around the world attempt to gain some normality within 
possible. Um, this week, we've also seen big boardroom reshuffles taking place. Melanie, you cover this, especially Orange. Um, Orange had a massive reshuffle there. We could almost do a whole podcast just on themselves. Um, what's what's happened? Yeah, you're right. There's been some really interesting um, recruitment activity the last few weeks, and a trend is starting to emerge. Um, Times appointments are a regular part of business. So in general terms, activity has obviously slowed during the pandemic. But as you say, we've still seen some big announcements coming from the telecoms and tech sectors over recent weeks. We've had announcements from Colt, Cineverse, Vinage, 3UK, so on and so on. Um, but the story here isn't just that they're recruiting or shaking up teams, it's why they're doing it. Um, so like you said, there's been two stories in the last two weeks. And first up is Orange. So it has started working on a new strategic plan called Engage 2025. And this week that saw a huge shakeup on the executive committee. Now, the reason Orange is giving for this is that the new roles will renew focus on upcoming technologies such as AI data, 5G. Um, and it also wants to define the company of tomorrow, as it puts it, in a post-pandemic world. Um, now, Orange believes that COVID has drastically changed the playing field and essentially it's adapting to be able to continue operating at its best. Um, the other appointment was from ZTE, um, which has named its new president of mobile devices in Europe. Now, Nifei is going to take charge of mid-long-term opportunities in 5G and Internet of Things. Um, in the past, he has headed the creation of smartphones with industry-first capabilities, and he's also headed the launch of Red Magic for the mobile gaming market. So if we combine this with the gains ZT has already made in terms of 5G tech in Europe, it's poised to take a shot at some significant market share. Um, now, these Company of Tomorrow and Future Tech themes have been a huge focus at ITW this week, and I know that everyone on the team has conducted so many interviews that eventually come back to this too. Um, so team question time, if you were a telecoms or tech CEO, what future trends would you want to prepare for? Xiao, maybe um, you have some inspired ideas. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's on <the> <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, well, look, um, I think first, although a lot of the conversation revolves around COVID um, in the near future, I believe the vast majority of data center operators and telcos have the capability to support the, the big bang boom um, that I mentioned before. Um, these are people that when they build and deploy, they also do it in a way to cope with demand that doesn't exist at the time of launch. Um, so uh, having said that, I think from a longer term perspective, it will be important to plan faster, to plan for faster de deployments um, and get ready to come online faster as well. Um, a trend that we will possibly see gaining pace really is the importance of IT infrastructure um, in the digital economy and therefore CEOs need to be ready to, to sit at the table with government figures to really make their case. Um, this is possibly a one in a lifetime opportunity for the industry to really make its case uh, and show just how much the world relies on it and why it is important. And we've seen some changes here, especially with um, telcos and data center operators gaining the, um, oh, what was the word? I forgot the word now. During the lockdown, you needed to have that special permission, so critical workers um, to go out and do their job. So there was something already good coming out of this bad situation that we are in. That we are in. Um, secondly, of course, edge computing will definitely pick up. We've seen AWS's recent launch of SnowCon this morning, um, and together with 5G, this is something CEOs will need to maybe revise plans to speed up deployments um, to answer the world's needs. But of course, that's easier said than done, uh, especially especially in the US probably. Um, and lastly, an important trend that sometimes gets a bit overlooked is possibly the human trend, um, if you can call it that way. We are living an historical moment with COVID, um, the global movement against racism and discrimination, social unrest, climate change. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. I think one important trend that really gets, um, as I said, overlooked sometimes is the human capital. 
Um, so CEOs in their business, businesses seem to be going in the right direction, but there will be an increased need to really invest in people and support staff during this crisis uh, and during these times. Um, and this doesn't have to, to just be a trend for now. It is something that really needs to be embedded um, in every company's strategy. Um, but we've seen the first baby steps, but I'll probably add this new trend of human capital into the table. Um, plus, I think CEOs need to look at the lessons from this pandemic um, and look through their businesses uh, to ensure that we're ready for the next one, because um, you never know and better safe than sorry. And most likely we'll have another one um, at some point, hopefully just in 100 years time, so we get enough time to, to prepare for it. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm going to show up now and let you guys talk. Um, but yeah, those will say the main three trends um, that I'll go with, but probably the critical infrastructure. Um, so the discussions need to happen in the industry and the, the human capital. Um, so from my perspective, I think one trend that I, I have kind of seen cropping up over the last week in particular and during the discussions at ITW is, is gaming. Um, and I know that is something that probably <clears throat> most people will say, oh, well, we know about gaming. But I think the, the current crisis has really kind of uh, magnified um, the the needs um, and the demands that the gaming is putting on the on the network. So for example, we know that at the start of the pandemic, um, DKX Frankfurt reported that it saw um, the number of users of in, in online and um, cloud gaming platforms double. And as its content delivery networks were also experiencing a growth in data traffic of about 50%. Um, so this was also further corroborated in yesterday's ICW um, Asia Pacific Regional Panel, uh, where Robert Jones CEO and founder of Bluefire said that um, these eight AAA games uh, coming to the networks and AAA games for those who don't know are, are games that um, are, have particularly large budgets and are very uh, high bandwidth intensive. Um, these games and the only real way from a performance latency bandwidth and capacity point of view for it to become a mass market reality is with the new networks that we're building with 5G. So I think as a result of that, you're going to see a lot more uh, content players leveraging this new infrastructure in the gaming space. And as such, I think um, the telcos in particular uh, have to bear in mind the specific requirements um, for these uh, content, um, these this content, this gaming. Uh, and the proliferation that it's having in particular markets. So, for example, we know that it's particularly popular and particularly uh, uh, large in Asia Pacific. So it's something that a trend that we should definitely uh, not overlook in the future. Abigail, any thoughts from you? Yeah, so um, I've got a little sneak preview of my future article that I'm yet to write, but I spoke with the CEO of um, the analytics firm SAS, James Goodnight, um, this week, which was so interesting because he was putting great emphasis on the investment of AI in the sector and um, just like some groundbreaking things, groundbreaking technologies that is set to happen in the future. Um, and with the use of artificial intelligence, I feel like if I was a data center CEO, I would certainly want to prepare my business with, you know, the kind of infrastructure that will be able to carry the mass data that comes with AI offerings. Um, in particular with like healthcare, you know, like we've all been mentioning about COVID-19 and not only that, but uh, cancer, new cancer research and things that they're using AI to kind of, you know, develop and discover and agriculture and um, many of the other se sectors that will be embracing new developments in the AI space. And I'll definitely, if I was a CEO data center, um, a data center CEO, I would definitely tap into that market investment wise as well. I think that would be quite good for capital for my business. So this is all dreamland, but those are the kind of trends that I will definitely follow if that was my job role. 
Right, I'll take over from there. Thanks, Abigail. Um, no I think what a future CEO has got to uh, handle is, is, as we've sort of alluded to, everyone working from home. Um, and I don't mean customers, I mean their own staff. Uh, whether you're a data center company or a telecoms company, you've got to recognize that the whole network, the whole system has got to be run by people in their spare bedrooms um, working over a fiber network or a uh, broadband network because you're not going to be in a big shiny building. Uh, that was Kerry Gilder's words in the opening session of ITW. The, we've got we've seen the end of the big shiny building. Uh, it's bad for a CEO's ego in future, but who needs them if we're not working there? Some companies have already started it. HGC Global Communications in Hong Kong. They remembered SARS, the SARS pandemic, uh, about 17 years ago, which really hit Hong Kong badly. And so as soon as January, as we got into January and they could see what was happening across in China, they started preparing for a lockdown. They booked hotel rooms for all their staff. They told their staff to move away from home so that they didn't get cross infection and that sort of thing. Um, the whole company operated remotely. Um, and so did Sparkle in Italy. Um, uh, the CEO of Sparkle was talking about that uh, in the opening panel. So I think a, a future CEO is not is going to be somebody who's got to get used to not having a big shiny building to walk around and show off and have a, a nice car park with a top scale car outside. They've basically got to be working from home like we are. <laughs> Melanie. <laughs> that will definitely change things. Well, in the name of team spirit, I will also put forward my suggestions. Um, building on Jao's point in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement and the COVID pandemic, um, yeah, the private sector has the potential to make some really, really positive change in terms of community and environment. Um, so in addition to the human capital um, that he has predicted, I think that the move towards carbon neutrality as a cost control um, is something that will remain relevant for a long time. All right, some, some fascinating insights in there. Um, definitely, and, and Alan, to your points about um, the examples with the, the Hong Kong firms as well, um, I think that's something we'll be discussing more um, in the coming weeks. Um, but okay, thank you everyone for your contributions. Uh, with, that, with that said, that's all from me and the team for this week's episode of the, uh, the Digital Digest. Sorry. Um, thank you to our listeners at home, and do join us again next week when we talk about the top stories that will make the headlines over the next seven days. In the meantime, make sure to subscribe to both Data Economy and Capacity Newsletters. Uh, from me and the team, have a good weekend.